Well, as we come to God's word this morning, turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John. Now, as I reflect on the last several months, God's providence is incredible. When, when Steve and I were working out the preaching, preaching schedule for the months of November and December, we worked it out that I would be preaching this Sunday. And when we did that, at the time, Steve wasn't sure what he was going to do for his Advent series. And I wasn't 100% sure what I was going to do for my text this morning. And in God's providence, he worked it out so that after an Advent series in which we focused on the names of our Messiah, on the names of Christ, from Isaiah 9-6, that we would end the year on John 8-12, where Jesus proclaims himself to be the light of the world. And I couldn't think of a more appropriate way to end this year. But before we dive into our text this morning, we need to briefly talk about John 7-53 versus John 8-11. And that narrative is a familiar one, I'm certain, to many of us because that is the narrative of the woman caught in adultery. Now, if you remember from the last time, which I'm sure everybody does, the last time that we were in John, we ended at John 7, verse 52. This morning, we are going to continue with John 8, verse 12. So the question is, what about this narrative of the woman caught in adultery? Well, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I do want to talk about this. I've given myself five minutes at the most, uh, because I don't want to take away too much from our text this morning. But I believe very strongly in the authority of the word. As a preacher, it's important to preach as Paul uh, taught to preach the whole counsel of God or the whole counsel of Scripture. I think preachers get into trouble when they skip over texts they don't want to preach on for whatever particular reason. So why am I not going to or say I'm not going to preach on John 7:53 through verses 8, 11? Well, if you look at your Bible, most likely that section in your Bible is either in parentheses or your Bible goes straight from John 7.52 to John 8.12 and there is a footnote. The question is, why is this section or why is this narrative of Scripture treated this way? And that's because most New Testament scholars do not believe that the narrative of the woman caught in adultery was part of the Gospel of John when it was originally written. They believe that this narrative was added centuries later. So the question is, how did they come, or how did they come to this conclusion? Well, briefly, uh, there's a number of reasons, but here's a few of them. One, in the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have, this story is actually missing from the Gospel of John. It is not there in our earliest copies of the Gospel of John. And when the story first appears in manuscripts, as he shows up in three different places other than here, So we see it here, we see it a a couple different places in John 7, and even in one manuscript in John chapter 21. The narrative actually flows well in thought and structure if you go from John 7.52 to John 8.12. And on top of that, the style and the vocabulary of that section of Scripture is actually not characteristic of John's writing throughout his gospel. So the evidence is quite clear that this isn't part of John's original gospel account. Now, although that may be true, even leaving out this narrative does not in any way, so our hearts can be comforted in knowing it does not in any way change what this gospel teaches, it does not in any way change anything that we know about Christ, and it does not change any Christian doctrine. It doesn't change any views on that uh, if we leave out this narrative. So what's interesting is that the same scholars that don't believe this narrative is in John's original gospel think it probably occurred in Jesus' life, that it circulated amongst the churches and was added later. And although that may be true, that doesn't put that section of scripture on the same level as authoritative scripture. It doesn't, it doesn't put it on the same level. So what am I going to do? So what am I going to do as a preacher? I'm going to preach that which I'm confident is the word of God, that which I believe was part of John's gospel when he originally wrote it. So we are going to focus this morning, and we're going to look at John chapter 8, verse 12. So that's what we're going to start, and that's what I'm going to read this morning. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. So our main takeaway, our big idea for this morning is because Jesus is the true light, 
that shines in a dark world, we should walk in the light. I'll say that one more time. Because Jesus is the true light that shines in a dark world, we should walk in the light. Now, how does Jesus clearly communicate this truth about himself to us this morning? Well, he does so like he does so many times throughout his ministry, and he does that with a visual aid. Jesus, oftentimes, as you read the Gospels and you read about his life, he used what was physically around him. He used things that the crowds would know and would understand and would be intimately familiar with in order to drive home his point. So for us this morning to understand that, we need to look at the context of what Jesus is talking about when he makes this statement. And to remind ourselves from previous sermons in chapter 7, Jesus is currently in Jerusalem, and at that time they're celebrating the Feast of Booths, or otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles. It is the last day of the feast, as John said in John 7:37, he says on the last day or the great day of the feast. And the Feast of Booths had several different ceremonies that had developed over time that the Jewish people had developed over time to remind them of what God had done for them in their wilderness wanderings. Now one that we talked about last time when, when we looked at uh, chapter 7 was this water libation ceremony. And that was where the priests, they drew water from the pool of Siloam and they poured it along with wine over the altar. And we said that that symbolized God's provision for them in the desert as well as the promise of the future outpouring of the Spirit of God when the Messiah came. Well, another ceremony that occurred during this Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles that is pertinent to us this morning was called the Lighting Ceremony. And they believe that the Lighting Ceremony occurred each evening of the festival. And during this nighttime ceremony, they had these huge lamps that they would set up in the court of women. And that when it got dark, they would light these massive lamps. And then the people would spend the night celebrating under the light in the temple area. It was said that the, this light was so bright that it would shed its glow all over Jerusalem. Well, you can imagine with me then, in the midst of this lighting of these huge lamps in the court of women during the celebration of the, of the Feast of Tabernacles, with the people celebrating, Jesus stands up against this backdrop and he declares to the crowds, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. So the first thing we want to look at then is then the source of true light. The source of true light. In our passage this morning, we see that Jesus references darkness. Right? He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Well, what does Jesus mean? We need to understand this darkness. If we can think about the context of what he's saying this in, when it's dark, and then they're lighting these lamps that would then make it bright. So in the context of that, Jesus references darkness. But what does he mean? Well, at the beginning of creation, when God created all that we see and cannot see in the universe, God looked at all that he had made and he declared it good. God, as we know, had created a perfect universe without any sin. And sin didn't come into the world until Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. They willfully decided to turn against God. And in so doing, when they did that, they introduced sin into the world. And since that moment, this world has been plunged into darkness. And in that darkness, every single aspect of creation then is touched or is tainted or is affected by sin. And over the last month, Steve has been preaching through the names of Christ in Isaiah 9. And each of those names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, speak to a specific answer to the darkness of this world. As we looked at the darkness of this world as a result of sin brings confusion into which we need the Wonderful Counselor. The darkness of this world brings powerlessness into which we need the Mighty God. The darkness of this world brings oppression into which we need everlasting father and the darkness of this world brings conflict into which we need the prince of peace the physical world around us even as paul says in romans 8 is groaning as it eagerly awaits christ to come and to fix that which has been broken 
But the darkness of the world doesn't just affect the physical world around us. It also affects every single person. Because of sin, there is now physical death. Every single person in this room, unless Jesus comes back first, will at some point in their life experience physical death. And this is not because of some, necessarily some specific sin in your life, but because of the general effects of living in a sin-fallen world. But sin doesn't just affect our physical bodies. It also affects our souls. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, we're all born with a sin nature. We are sinners by nature and by choice. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All people, everybody is born spiritually dead, living solely for themselves, and apart from God, we are all children of wrath, destined for the future day of wrath. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, he de- describes our natural condition this way, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In our natural sin-fallen condition, we are blind. Apart from God, we are blind to the truth of God. We cannot see it. Paul even says elsewhere that the natural person cannot understand the things of God. But not only that, Jesus said during his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, he says that the majority of people born into this world are walking on a wide and easy road that leads to destruction. And people are not forced to walk down this road. He actually describes it as that they love it. John 3, 19 through 20, Jesus says this, People loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So apart from God, every person in this world is spiritually dead, spiritually blind, unable to understand the things of God, walking on a wide road that leads to destruction, unaware that they are walking around with the wrath of God building up against them. And they love this darkness because they actually don't want their evil deeds to be exposed. They don't want their evil deeds to be seen in the light. And this is the dark world in which we live in. This is the condition of every person apart from God. So, so this day after Christmas then, what hope is there? What hope do we have or does anybody have in the midst of the darkness of this world? Well, if this is where God left us, then there would be no hope. But glory be to God, he didn't leave us without hope. From the very moment that Adam and Eve sinned, God gave them hope, and he gave them hope by giving them a promise. And in the middle of God telling Adam and Eve the curse as a result of their sin, he famously says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God promised Adam and Eve a child who would come and who would crush the head of the serpent. A child who would come and would bring deliverance in the midst of darkness. This is a child of hope. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God gave the Israelites pictures and promises of what this child of hope, this serpent crusher, would be like. And that's what we've been doing even for the last four weeks in our Advent series. We've been looking at a description of this child of hope in Isaiah 9. 1 through 6. And I want to just read two verses from that text this morning. In the midst of darkness that we've been talking about, God gives this promise in Isaiah 9, verse 2. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep, deep darkness, on them has light shone. To be clear, this description, verse 2, is all of us born into this world. We have just described the natural condition of every person. We walked in a deep darkness, 
We dwell in the land of darkness, but in this place, in this condition, a light has shone. And what light is that? It is the light of the child of hope from Genesis 3. It is, as Isaiah 9, 6 describes this child, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This child of hope is the one who was promised to come. This child of hope is the one who would bring deliverance in a dark world. This child of hope would bring salvation from sin. And who is this bright light shining against the backdrop of a dark world? Well, Jesus answered that question clearly this morning. He says, I am the light of the world. And what does he mean when he says that he is the light? Well, this morning when we opened, we read some verses from John 1. I'm going to read these again. This is verses 9 through 13. He says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Jesus is the true light of the world. In the middle of the darkness and hopelessness of this world, the true light came into the world. And with him he brought the ability to see the light. With him he brought the right to become children of God. With him he brought salvation. He brought deliverance. He brought hope into a dark world. This is what Jesus means when he says that he is the light. But that begs the question this morning, that's how far can this light shine? In other words, who is this light for? And notice that Jesus says that he is the light of the world. This light of salvation, this hope of salvation that is only found in Christ is available to the world. What good news is that for us this morning? You don't have to be from a specific family. You don't have to be a specific ethnicity. You don't have to come from a specific socioeconomic status. Jesus, the light of the world, is available to all the world, to every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Every person. Jesus is the light of the world this morning. And Jesus says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In other words, God demonstrated the extent of his love for the world when he sent the light of the world into the darkness of our world. The giving of Christ... The giving of this child of hope is the declarative statement of God's love. Nothing else comes close in comparison. This is the light of salvation that is available to all. Well, we've just described the darkness of this world. We've talked about the brightness of Christ as he enters the world. But then how do people respond to this light? You would think that anyone who is exposed to this light would come running to the light. But yet, that is not what we see. We don't see that in Scripture, and we don't see it in our own experiences. Every person in this room knows someone who has been told the truth of Christ, someone who has heard the truth of the gospel, and the only hope that they have in the light of the world, yet that person does not respond. That person does not believe. Jesus said, or John said at the beginning of this gospel that Jesus came to his own and even his own did not receive him. Jesus, the light of the world, was rejected by those he came to. But why? Because they cannot see. They cannot see the light. Now when it comes to people who are blind, there are actu- actually degrees of blindness. Now, we tend to think of someone who is blind, that they can't see anything at all. You know, that all they can see is darkness. Well, that, however, is not true for the majority of individuals who would be considered blind. 
85% of all individuals with visual impairment have some remaining even perception of certain things. Uh, they may be able to perceive the difference between light and dark. Even though they may have very low vision, they can still tell the difference between lights being on or off and may even be able to walk toward a source of light in the room because they can perceive that it is there. Only approximately 15% of those who have visual impairment are considered totally blind. And the label that they give that is actually no light perception. These individuals cannot see or perceive even light or darkness. They cannot tell when it is light or it is dark. And although a small percentage of those with eyesight issues are totally blind, 100% of people who are born into this world have no light perception. They cannot see or perceive the light of the world. The light of the world can be blazing right in front of their eyes, which is exactly what happened in Jesus' day. They had the light of the world standing before them, declaring to them that I am the light of the world, and yet they could not see Him. They were totally blind. So if the light of the world is available to the world, yet the world cannot see it on their own, how does anyone come to the light? How does anyone respond to the light they cannot see? Well, the only hope a totally blind person has to be able to see the light is if someone opens their eyes to see it. They cannot do this on their own. There's absolutely nothing a person who has no light perception can do to make themselves be able to see or even perceive light. They need someone outside of them to do something to them to be able to see the light. And praise be to God that he doesn't leave us in this condition of no light perception. Praise God that he doesn't leave us this way. In John 3, Jesus, as we know, he has this conversation with Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and a teacher of the law. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that the requirement to be able to see the kingdom of God is that you must be born again. Spiritual sight requires new birth. If our old nature is totally blind to the light of the world, then we need a new nature that can see the light. We need a new nature that allows us to see the glorious light of Jesus. And as Jesus explained to Nicodemus, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual. We're all born into this world with no light perception. But then the Holy Spirit comes and he gives the elect the ability to see the light of the world, Jesus Christ. We cannot do this on our own. It is a miraculous work of God in us. And God chooses to do this, to work in this way through the gospel, which is the truth of Jesus. So if you're here this morning, or you're listening this morning and you don't know Christ, if you haven't responded to the light of the world, but continue to walk in dark darkness, then I call you this morning to turn to Christ. Turn from the darkness of this world. Turn from the hopelessness of this world. Turn from the broad road of destruction that leads to an eternity apart from Jesus. Turn from your sin. Place your trust, your hope, your faith in the only one that can save you. The one that is the only source of true hope. The one that is the true light. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Don't wait. Jesus is the light of salvation that is available to the world, but that cannot be seen apart from the work of the Spirit to open our spiritually dead eyes to be able to see the light. Well, that's the source of true light. What about the response to the true light? What about response to the true light? And we really see two responses to the true light in this passage. One, first is, we will follow Jesus. That's the first response. We will follow Jesus. What is the response of those whose eyes are open to see the true light? When you fly in an airplane, one of the things they always do before takeoff is they go through the safety features on the plane. And one of those safety features is lights on the floor of the plane that will guide you to the nearest exit in case it's dark 
in case something's going on, you follow the lights and they will take you to safety. And if you were on a plane and it was dark and you couldn't see and you needed to respond, what would your response be if the only light you could see were the strips of light on the floor? My guess is you would respond like I would. You would follow the lights to safety. You would follow the lights to be saved. And that is exactly what every person who is blinded by the God of this world does when their eyes are opened and they're able to see the brilliant light of our glorious Savior as they follow the light. After Jesus declares he's the light of the world, he says, whoever follows me, those who see the light of the world will follow him. They cannot be exposed to the true light and then choose to close their eyes and walk away. When someone sees the true light of the world, as God opens their spiritually dead eyes, what they see is so wonderful, so amazing, so glorious that they can't do anything but run to the light. They can do nothing but repent of their sins and follow Jesus. This is faith. This is genuine faith. All those whose eyes are truly opened will follow Christ. That may be the first response, but the second response we see in this text is we will not walk in darkness, but we'll walk in the light. We will not walk in darkness, but we will walk in the light. What does it look like to follow the light of the world? Jesus answers that by describing what it doesn't look like. To follow Jesus is to not walk in darkness. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. This lifestyle then, if we think of it on the other side of following Jesus, is characterized then by light and not by darkness. So that's really the question. What does it mean then to walk in the light? And he doesn't give us any description here in John 8 about what this looks like. And as what happens often with narratives... We need to look to the rest of the New Testament to help us flesh out what we're reading in this narrative. And we're going to specifically look at another of John's writings, the epistle of 1 John. And in that epistle, John expands upon this idea. If you can imagine all these... All these narratives that we're reading in the Gospel of John, John has been walking with Christ for three years and being exposed to the person of Christ and the teaching of Christ. And he's heard that Jesus is the light of the world. And those who follow Him will not walk in darkness, but will walk in light. And after years of living for Christ and thinking on Christ, he writes 1 John then where he's going to expose and expand on that truth so we can understand well, what does it really mean and what does it look like then to be one who walks in the light. He says it succinctly at the end of that letter in 1 John 5.13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, those who are saved, that you may know you have eternal life. So this is written as an assurance to believers. And in doing that, though, he lays out what this looks like, what it looks like to walk in the light. At the beginning, in 1 John 1, he says, this is the message we have heard from him, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sins. In other words, this letter is all about walking in the light. So as John expands on what Jesus means, we're going to look at three descriptions of what it means to walk in the light. And for each of these, John circles back to them time and again through his letter in 1 John. And we're not going to look at every reference in 1 John to these, but I would encourage you this week to set aside a little time, read through the entirety of 1 John with these three themes in mind. I want you to keep an eye on how often he comes back and he circles back to these three themes. See how John is taking Jesus' teaching that he would have heard and expanding on it. So with that in mind, here's three characteristics of what it means to walk in the light. So walking in the light is, first of all, living a lifestyle of repentance. Living a lifestyle of repentance. After John says 
at the beginning of his letter in 1 John, after he says that it's all about walking in the light, the first description that he gives is in 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. And in that description, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what is John getting at with these verses? And in these verses, John is describing a lifestyle of repentance. To walk in the light is to live a lifestyle of repentance. And what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means being honest about our sin. Being honest about our sin. Verse 8, which says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, is a picture of someone who does not hide their sin struggles from others. This is not a person that presents perfection to those around them. Listen, I'm going to tell you a truth this morning that I think you need to hear. And this is the truth for everybody in the room. And it shouldn't be surprising to anybody. You may think that you hide it, or perhaps you think that others don't see it, but everybody knows that you sin. Everybody knows that you sin and that I sin. And that is because everybody sins. And the person who is living a lifestyle of repentance doesn't try to present something false to those around them. Since everybody knows that you sin, and everybody knows that I sin, then we should just be honest with one another about our sin struggles. Now, hear me clearly, that doesn't mean that you share all of your sins with every single person in this room, but it does mean that you should have relationships with other believers in which you do share your sin struggles with. Believers who can hold you accountable for your sins. Believers who can come alongside you as you run this race together and you can help each other along. But to do this, we have to be honest about our sin. But not only is it being honest about our sin, it also means to actively seek forgiveness when we do sin. We need to be honest about our sin. And then we need to actively seek forgiveness when we do sin. We see this in verse 9, 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a lifestyle of repentance that is characterized by honest confession and a seeking of restitution or of reconciliation. This means that we understand that any sin we commit is ultimately against God, and when we sin, we should run to Him, confessing our sins and receiving the forgiveness that we already have in Christ. But it also means that we do all that we can to be reconciled to one another when we do, and we will, and we have, and we will again sin against each other. We confess our sins honestly before God and before the person we have sinned against seeking to be reconciled. This is a lifestyle of repentance. It's not only being honest about sin struggles and actively seeking forgiveness when we do sin, but it also means over time we are growing in holiness. Over time we are growing in holiness. We are growing to become more like Jesus. And John makes it clear, there's a section in 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10, where John says that no one, no one born of God, so no believer makes a practice of sinning. Now, a person who keeps on in a never-ending, never-changing habit pattern of sin is demonstrating that they're not walking in the light. There should be brokenness over sin. There should be openness and honesty with those around us. There should be seeking to be reconciled to others when we sin. And this, over time, should produce growth and change in us. To be clear, this is not perfection. I am not preaching perfection because we will never be perfect this side of glory. And it also does not mean necessarily instantaneous change. Although God can just remove certain sinful desires from our lives, that's not how he typically works. The normative Christian life is a lifelong battle against our sin struggles. But that lifelong battle is not hopeless because we do not wage that war in our own flesh. 
but by the power of the Holy Spirit in us that will produce change. So a lifestyle of repentance then is characterized by an honesty over sin, seeking, seeking rec- reconciliation before God and others when we do sin, and a progressive growth in holiness. That's one, one characteristic of what it means to walk in the light. Secondarily, it's believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus. Walking in the light is not only living a lifestyle of repentance, but it's believing in Jesus. John writes in 1 John 2, 4 through 6, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. But John doesn't just leave it there as this generic obedience to Christ. He makes it specific as he continues to work through this letter. And he actually ties it to two specific areas later in this epistle. He writes this in 1 John 3, 23-24. He says, and this is his commandment. Here's a commandment. A command from God that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him, and by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. John mentions two things in that verse. The first is belief in Jesus, and the second is love for others. And we're going to save love for others when we talk about the next characteristic of walking in the light. We're going to focus on believing in Jesus. What does that mean? That means we are to believe in Jesus as he is given to us, presented to us in Scripture. There were some different heresies that were going on at the time when John wrote this letter. And he very clearly says here that you cannot, you cannot believe whatever you want to about Jesus. We don't get to choose the Jesus we believe in. Jesus is God. All that makes God, God, is present in Jesus. His his nature is truly God, but Jesus is also man. That's what we celebrated yesterday in his incarnation, this this miracle that happens when, when God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, comes and takes flesh upon himself and in doing that, he had the same flesh as you and I, just without sin. And he lived a perfect and sinless life. And he died a substitutionary death on the cross for you and for me. And three days later, he rose from the dead. He took the punishment you and I deserve for our sins upon himself, that through faith in him we might receive eternal life. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is the Jesus of Scripture. And we cannot believe in any other version or any other form of Jesus and say that we walk in the light. We cannot believe in the Jesus that the world portrays and walk in the light. It is either all that the scriptures present as Christ, that we have been confronted with our entire time in this gospel, or it is none of him. There are no other options those who walk in the light believe believe in this jesus and no other so walking in the light is living a lifestyle of repentance and walking in the light is believing in the jesus of scripture and lastly walking in the light is loving others walking in the light is loving others First John 2, 9-11 through 11 says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And as you read through this letter, John repeats this over And over again, he makes it a dominant theme. We cannot walk in the light and hate our brothers. We cannot walk in the light and hate those around us. Put positively, walking in the light is loving others. And really, this shouldn't surprise us. 
when, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment in the law, he said that the greatest commandment was to love God. But the second was like and that was loving others. Jesus commanded his disciples in John 15 to love one another. He even said that other people we will know, other people will know that we are followers of Christ by the love that we have for one another. Walking in the light is loving others. And what is our source or motivation for this love for others? John says in 1 John 4 that we love because God first loved us. The source of our biblical love for others is God's love for us. The motivation for us to love other people is the love that God has shown us. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love for us that was put on display through Jesus Christ should grow our love for God, which should then just flow out towards those around us. And what should it look like? What should our love for others look like? What should it look like the love of God towards us? 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Our love for others should look like Jesus' love for us. That means this is a sacrificial, intentional pursuing love this is a love that puts others before ourselves this is a love that considers others as better than ourselves this is a love that says no to me and yes to someone else this is a willingness to give of my life for other people and although it could mean a giving of my physical life for others it isn't only that it's a willingness for my life my time my resources my talents my abilities my emotional energy to be poured out and used up for someone else it is a love that is characterized by the humility of Christ which is so beautifully expressed in Philippians 2:5 through 11 which Tyler read earlier in the service to walk in the light is to live a lifestyle of repentance. To walk in the light is, to, is, is believing in Jesus. And to walk in the light is loving others as Christ has loved us. This is what it looks like to have the light of the world inside of you coming out of you. And people who walk in the light want others to see. They want others to see what is inside of them. By contrast, those who walk in the dark, they hide in the dark. They don't want others to see what they do, but instead they want to hide themselves from those around them so no one can see the true condition of their heart. They don't want people to know. That, however, should not be the way that Christians walk. The reality is that all who are Christ have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We are no longer citizens of the kingdom of darkness. We are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. We are citizens of the light of the world. Paul, when talking about the coming rapture, he describes Christians as children of light. Jesus calls those who follow him in John 12 as sons of light. When God saves us, he adopts us into the kingdom of Jesus and we become children of light. And as children of light, we should walk in the light, desiring others to see the light in us coming out of us. We should strive to live a lifestyle of repentance, of faith, and of loving others as Christ has loved us. And this picture of walking in the light is the contrast in Jesus' words back in John eight twelve. Jesus said, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He contrasts not walking in darkness with having the light of life. So what is the light of life? Put very simply, this is eternal life. This is the reason that Christians can follow Jesus. This is the reason that Christians can walk in the light and not in darkness. This is the reason that every believer here this morning can walk in the light. It is because we have the light of life. We have the gift of eternal life. And when you and I walk in the light, we are a walking showcase of the light of the world. 
Jesus. When we walk in the light, we are allowing the light of Christ in us to come out of us. Like Israel in the wilderness, which those those lamps during that ceremony were to represent how they followed the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. We are to follow the light, Jesus. And just like God saved Israel in order for Israel to be a light to the nations, God did not save us through the light of the world in order that that light to be for ourselves. God saved us so that we would be a light for Him. He saved us by the light of the world so that we would be little imperfect reflections of His light to the world around us. You know, if we look at this phrase, light of the world, it shows up elsewhere in Jesus' ministry. He actually used it in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus did in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Isn't it amazing that the light of the world uses this phrase to describe believers? Jesus says that those whom he has saved, those whom he has transferred from darkness into his kingdom, those who he he has adopted, and has brought in as children of light, are then sent out into the world as a light to the world. Please see the glorious truth this morning after Christmas. All those who are saved here this morning have Jesus, the light of the world, inside of you. And as you walk around in this world, you prayerfully are giving off this same light. It isn't you, it's Jesus in you coming out of you. Jesus said that you and I are like a city on a hill or a lamp on a stand, not to be hidden, but to let Jesus, the light of the world, in us shine out so that all can see Jesus. We are to shine the light and so bring glory on our Father in heaven. And when we live a lifestyle that is marked by repentance, by faith in the Jesus of Scripture, and by love for others, we are doing just that. And what is astounding to me is that this primarily happens in the ordinary of life. It is the daily, moment-by-moment decisions that demonstrate Christ in these ways that brings glory to God. It is choosing to take ownership for our own sin, no matter what that costs. It is choosing to have others in your life that help keep you accountable for your sin so that you can grow in holiness. It is the daily fight and struggle against sin as you try by the power of the Spirit to just do the next right thing. It is staying in the fight, staying in the race, staying in the battle as you step in obedience to God's Word one small step at a time. It is being confronted with the truth of God's word. Something that you know you should be doing or aren't. Or maybe you are doing but not doing well. And deciding in that moment to say no to yourself and yes to what Jesus has for you. Even though it pushes against your flesh. It is choosing to love others in the way Christ has loved you. Even when you get nothing in return. Even when others don't seem to notice. Even when it seems like it doesn't make any difference at all. I was reminded this past week that walking in the light is contained in the small decisions, the small moments, the ones that outwardly may seem insignificant. These are the small moments in life that build over a lifetime. And dear saints this morning, faithfully, consistently walk in the life or in the light. Live a lifestyle marked by repentance, marked by faith in Christ, and marked with a Christ-like love for others. In 1838, an itinerant evangelist by the name of Philip Bliss wrote a hymn, and he entitled it, The Light of the World is Jesus, which seems rather appropriate for this morning. So as we come to a close this morning, I want you to hear the words of this hymn. The whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. 
Like sunshine at noonday, his glory shone in. No darkness have we who in Jesus abide. We walk in the light when we follow our guide. Ye ye dwellers in darkness with sin-blinded eyes, go, wash at his bidding, and light will arise. No need of the sunlight in heaven, we're told. The Lamb is the light in the city of gold. And here's the refrain. Come to the light, tis shining for thee. Sweetly the light has dawned upon me. Once I was blind, but now I can see the light of the world is Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word this morning after Christmas as we have celebrated the light of the world. As we have celebrated this light, this hope, the only hope that there is in a dark world, coming into the darkness of this world, taking on human flesh, living a life of perfect obedience to you, dying on the cross, taking the punishment for rising three days later. God, as we celebrate the coming, the incarnation of Christ this morning, God, I pray that our hearts would be overwhelmed with the light of the world, with this light that would choose to open anybody's eyes to see him. God, we don't deserve it. But we're so eternally grateful and thankful for it. God, I pray that our hearts would be filled to overwhelming with love and affection for our Savior. That we could conceive of nothing else but to follow Christ by walking in the light. God, I pray that our lives would be marked by a lifestyle of repentance, of openness and honesty of our sin of before those around us, of seeking to be reconciled when we do sin, and of growth and holiness, God, that our lives would be marked by our belief of faith in Jesus of Scripture, that we would believe in Him. And God, I pray that our lives would be marked by a Christ-like love for others, that we cannot hope to do on our own, but only by Christ in us, coming out of us, God. I pray that our desire is that in every, in all the small moments of life, in the daily decisions, in the daily conversations with spouses and with children, with co-workers and with neighbors, with those in the community and those here at church and those all, all around us, God, that our desire is that people would see the light in us coming out of us so that they can see And know Jesus this Christmas season, God. So I pray that you would help us as we desire to live life in that way, which would be pleasing and honoring to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.